0: Cliterate. Adjective meaning schooled in the art of the clitoris. Lori Mintz is the guest on our show today and is the author of the book Becoming Cliterate. Why orgasm equality matters and how to get it. She's a professor, therapist, writer for Psychology Today, published in academic journals, and overall, She's an advocate for helping people better understand the clitoris and its integral role in female pleasure, which also kind of means she's an advocate for people who get pleasure from pleasuring people with clitorises. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to join you and be here and talk to you. So to get right into it, I want to ask you, I've had a lot of young women in their 20s, in their 30s, coming to me and saying, I've lost my libido. How do I find my sexual desire again and reconnect with my partner and with myself? So what is it that you think's going on there? What would you say to these young women in that situation or perhaps to their partners? What is this kind of phenomenon that they're interpreting? Is that actually what's going on? Or or is this something that's maybe just in their head and, and more of a mindset? Well,
1: you know, it's of all the sexual problems that people bring to counselors and therapists, lost libido is the most common one. As many as 60% of women at some point say they lost their libido. And while you usually think of that as someone older, I mean, it can really happen at any age. So, I mean, if I was talking to a particular young woman, I would want to ask a lot of questions first to get a sense of what's going on. Um, You know, did this change coincide with something in your life or relationship, a new stressful job, a fight with your partner, you know, whatever that is, and kind of look at the whole life context. And, you know, of course, depending what we'd find out, you know, we would go down a different path. But since I obviously can't necessarily talk to every listener out there, let me say a few general things about lost libido in women. It's extremely common. And what happens is what we know until pretty recently about sexual desire was known from men and we have this linear model of desire, meaning for most people, I feel horny, leading to sexual activity, leading to arousal, hopefully, you know, satisfaction, orgasm, you know, sex over, women can have multiple orgasms. So that's what we know. But what we thought that was applied to women and men, but it's not true, actually. As women age, and now 20, 30 is not, you know, really aging, but it's still true that as women age, and here's what I think might be going on with these people you're talking to, as women age as they get longer into relationships, so the longer a relationship and really critically when they're stressed out, their libido, all three of those things decrease libido and Stress affects women's sex drive much more than it does men's. Like women start saying, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? I never feel horny. And then I'll ask them a really, really, really key question, which is when you have a sexual encounter anyway, despite not being horny, because women do that all the time because their partner wants to, because they know they'll be happy if they do. Uh, Like kind of like going to the gym. You don't want to go, but you have a good workout. Um, I say, when you have sex, do you enjoy it? And I typically hear, oh, yeah, it's awesome. Once I relax, it's great. And afterwards, I always think, oh, that was good. I should do that more often. But then the desire isn't there. And so what I often explain to women is that if it's fun, once it gets going, it's not duty sex. It's how women's desires sometimes works. They call it reversing the equation instead of waiting to be horny to have sex, which as you age, as you're stressed out, may never happen. You need to have sex to get horny because women's desire and arousal are more intertwined and circular. It's not linear. So I am guessing it's any one of those things, but I'm guessing that stress is a big culprit in what you're talking about.
0: Right, and I think that so often people cite something as a sexual problem when it doesn't actually have to do with that. Unless it's a diagnosed medical condition or an actual physiological problem, so much more often it can actually be traced down to many other things, psychological factors, which in some cases can actually be even more complex. But going off of that and from before, I've also had a lot of men come to me with somewhat similar issues on the performance side. And stress always seems to be this underlying issue that people really don't recognize as playing such an impactful role and uh, a big underlying issue that people just seem to look right over. Exactly. And
1: I think you're also hitting on another really important point that a lot of times what people say is a sexual problem is actually normal functioning but we have misguided ideas based on the media of what that is. So, for example, you know, that in the media, movies, porn, whatever, everybody's like really horny all the time. And in real life, people often have sex, you know, before they're horny and then it's good when it gets going. Or, you know, the one I've been writing about a lot lately is, you know, all these images of women having fast and fabulous orgasms from, intercourse when that's not how most women orgasm or men, you know, lasting 30 minutes, you know, and that's, you know, the average is like three to five minutes. So a lot of times people think something's
0: wrong with them when it's just normal human sexual functioning. And that's the part about becoming clitorate, right? Trying to educate people about what's normal. And I actually actively try and avoid using that word because the reality is There is no normal. And I think that's such a good point, what the real is, and also kind of what we try and do at BBXX as well. Whether it's recognizing that other people are not having nearly as much sex as you think they are, or the fact that a lot of people have trouble talking about finances with their partner. We just try and give people knowledge and tools that work to help them live better, real relationships in real life.
1: And I love that word real versus normal. I try to stay away from that word too. Sometimes I use the word normative instead. Mm. You know that this is common because you're right. But so many people worry about am I normal? Am I normal? Especially when it comes to sex and relationships. And that worry itself, Marty Klein is a writer, he calls it normality anxiety.
0: Mm. That
1: worry about being normal itself leads to a lot of problems.
0: And so from everything you've learned, what kind of advice would you then give to people in order to defy normative, closed-minded thinking in terms of ways to reconnect with themselves or with their partners, perhaps through cliteracy or even advice for their partners to help. Is it working for you? That would be what
1: I want to ask. You know, I work with people who, here's an example, who have a sexual encounter with their partner once a week, some once a month, and it's not, they shouldn't be asking, is that enough? Should I do it more? What's normal? The question should be, are you both happy with that frequency? Is forget the images, forget what you think you should. Don't, there's a saying psychologists have don't shut on yourself. Yeah. And, you know, is it working for you? Are you happy? Are you unhappy? And it's hard sometimes to differentiate what we think we should do, but really sitting with it, looking deep inside. You know, I think things like yoga and meditation, believe it or not, there's research on this, right? that it helps you be mindful, it helps you really get in touch with your own needs, your own desires, just learning to put your mind and body in the same place and really just look inside. What do I want? Am I happy? Is this working for us? Is it working for me?
0: Yeah, and I've actually done an interview with a couple in which I asked them, how many times a week do you have sex? And had them write down the answer separately on a piece of paper. And they were both kind of nervous or hesitant to share out loud. But then after they both shared and both said once a week, they went through this amazing self-reflection where they kind of examined what had just happened and said, wait, why were we embarrassed to share that? That's the accurate number and we're perfectly happy with that number. And he literally said, yeah, I'm perfectly happy with that. I think we have a great number. And it was just, the self-reflection process and discussion is something that I think everyone should open up to and, and was just amazing to witness. Not to mention a couple weeks later when a New York Times article came out literally stating that once a week is, were there a normal, which we discussed, there shouldn't be, but would be a very normal number, and there aren't actually any additional psychological benefits to having sex more than once a week. And the fact of the matter really is that if you're happy, if you're both happy with whatever your situation is, then it's perfect. And stop thinking you need to change anything. Exactly. Yet these images, you know, that we should
1: should be more, should be two or three times a week. So you're exactly right. Like what works for you? Mm -hmm. That's the question. As long as it's consensual and working for both people, it's great. And of course, then we get into this issue like of couples with mismatched sex drives. That's very real. Your couple you interviewed was super, super lucky, right? They both came up with once a week. But I have talked to couples, you know, one's frequency is once a week, the other's like four times a week. What do you do? Well, just like any other relationship issue, like what do we have for dinner or where do we go on vacation or how do we handle our finances? It's communication and compromise. That's the name of the game.
0: Yeah, so what kind of communication tools would you recommend to couples with that extremely common problem of mismatched levels of desire?
1: The same, I think sexual communication is just a subset of general communication. And that's why in when I counsel couples and in both my books, in the communication chapters, I teach general communication and then say, let's apply it to sex. But a conversation where you both use your best communication skills, like And for me, the top three communication skills are I statements, like I feel, I want, I'd like, without you, you, you. Don't ask questions that aren't really questions. That just sets a conversation off. How many times a week do you want to have sex? Well, that's not really a question because there's a statement behind there. And it's like, I hope you don't want to have it more than I do, you know, or less than I do. So, You know, sitting down at the kitchen table or on a walk or somewhere non-sexual and having this conversation and compromising, listening, reflecting, making sure you're hearing the other person, finding the grain of truth in what they're saying. And if you really can't solve it on your own, find a good therapist to help you have this conversation.
0: Yeah, and again, not in a sexual context is so important, which I think is a common mistake. Definitely. So as we're talking about, you know, whatever works for you, whatever the other person wants, etc., I think the problem is that sometimes people don't really know what they do want. And sometimes comparison helps people realize that, sometimes self-pleasure and you mention at one point in an article, you give the piece of advice that people should measure their, their pleasure with their partner against that of when they're pleasuring themselves, um, referring to mostly women, which really just puts it into perspective so perfectly and clearly. And I hope helps people own that and realize that they do have the right to that. And yes, in some ways, people might argue it's a high, high bar, but at the same time, it's really not because the objective measurement of orgasms you know, is in both of them, but obviously, masturbation is not a comparable experience to sex with an intimate partner, something I think especially men need to be reminded of. Both great, not the same, and not comparable. But there is definitely a lot to be learned from one that can help enhance the other. Yeah, you
1: know, that piece of advice, one reviewer called it brilliant and weirdly underutilized for women, which it is because, I mean, I don't mean the brilliant part, I mean the weirdly underutilized, like, and let me break it down with some stats that I love, Cher. There's been a couple studies of how women pleasure themselves. and. Only 1.2% of women pleasure themselves exclusively by putting something in their vagina. The rest use external stimulation either completely alone or some even, you know, about 12 to 20% depending on the study, will couple external stimulation and penetration. Yet what happens is when with men, women just like forget about, there's like this disconnect between what they do alone and what they think they should do with the partner and they're expecting to orgasm from intercourse. And it's like that is such a disconnect. And there's a great quote by a woman named Elizabeth Lloyd who basically says, male masturbation resembles the same kind of stimulation as intercourse. Female masturbation looks nothing like it. And so how can we help women to orgasm doing partnered sex, especially with men? Women having sex with women have known this for a long time and that's why they're having fewer orgasm problems. To transfer the skills, there is, and I tell people there is no self-pleasure technique that without, with some creativity, cannot be transferred into partner sex you just have to stop thinking of sex as intercourse and think of it as the whole of the encounter and adopt a turn taking model. Or I can give you lots of examples, but so I'm really excited that you picked that up because I think that's a really potentially life sexual altering perspective shift for people. I've seen it really help people.
0: Yeah. And I think that 1% statistic you quoted about masturbation techniques should pretty much be plastered across billboards internationally.
1: Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. (laughs) I would. Yeah. Because people think that they're weird, that they don't orgasm from intercourse, yet they're not connecting. Well, that's not what I do when I'm alone. And when women um, masturbate, about ninety-four percent reach orgasm within a few minutes. That we know how to do it alone. We just don't bring it into our partnered encounters. So
0: yeah, I don't think those statistics are out there enough. Um, I think a lot of men don't realize, and, and also women. And I do understand that for a lot of women, it can be very difficult to reach orgasm, and obviously it can be very different you know from masturbation to with a partner especially if you know you're somebody that struggles with getting out of your head but i do think that people also need to realize that on the other end of this spectrum there are also many women out there who are capable of reaching orgasm very quickly not to mention multiple times and so, it isn't necessarily always this great mysterious quest for this insurmountable goal, you know? Sometimes it's just a quite straightforward matter of having some information and perhaps some practice. And of course, people feeling comfortable and owning their desire, not to mention their right to it, which is kind of, you know, the most important at the end to demand what you deserve and what you desire.
1: Yes, and this benefits men as well because once they give up the idea that they're supposed to give an orgasm, a woman an orgasm with their penis, it frees them up to be much more loving, more creative, and it takes the pressure off of them and pressure leads to all kinds of sexual difficulties, you know, erection difficulties, that kind of thing. And so this knowledge benefits everyone. This is kind of a funny story. I was at a lecture just last night given by a friend of mine who's a gynecologist and she said, get to the audience. She said, you know, guess how many women orgasm from intercourse, blah, blah, and she's given the stats. And then she said she'd recently given a lecture to medical students and she asked them the same question. And one of the male medical students said eighty percent orgasm during intercourse. And she's like, Nope. Nope, more depending on the study, but more around fifteen or twenty percent. He's like, Nope, nope, you're wrong. You're lying. It's it's most women. And she's like, they went back and forth and he said, I'm telling you, you're lying. And she looked him in the eye and she goes, No, they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> and you know 70% of women are faking orgasm during intercourse and all that does is train your partner to do what doesn't work for you
0: right so and for instance I think that the number one reason people fake orgasms a lot of them say during a one night stand that oh you know I wasn't having a great time or I just wasn't gonna happen I was over it but what about the woman that then comes after you who then also gets sent to pound town as well (laughs) and has to deal with that because no one is giving this poor guy constructive criticism and he might legitimately think that what he's doing is working. So what about maybe trying some open dialogue or body language to improve your experience, not to mention the gal that comes along after you because, for example, if it really is a one-night stand, then by definition, you're never going to see this person again, anyways. So, quite literally, what do you have to lose? Kind of absolutely nothing. Honestly,
1: I've seen a lot of writers. Really, I love that, by the way. Sent to Pound Town. I'm going to <laughs> use that, if I may, um, steal that from you. But you know, I have men who take my class too, and. They are, they really, really care. Like all this, you know, I'm not saying there aren't both women and men who don't care about their partner's pleasure, but you know, men have gotten a bad rap in this, you know, in the media that they don't care about women's pleasure. They're just self-centered. They're just into it for themselves. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm sure there are people like that. Run if you find one, run fast. Don't look back. Bye-bye.
0: And that's something everyone needs to know. If your partner doesn't care about your pleasure, whether you're male, female, or anywhere on the scale, that is not the norm. That is not a characteristic of a healthy relationship, nor should anyone think it is, which sadly some people don't realize, just like you mentioned. Right, but the young men
1: I talk to, they really want to please women, but they are misinformed because they're getting their sex ed from porn because we have a very bad sex ed in our country, um, which is a whole nother topic. But in the absence of sex ed, they're using porn, which porn is fun. Porn is, you know, it's enjoyable. I'm not anti-porn, but I'm anti-porn as role modeling. And so they think they're doing this great thing, and they're not. And we need to educate men as well as women if we're going to close the orgasm gap.
0: Yeah, and help people realize too that they're, are a lot of people out there who actually get their pleasure from pleasuring their partner. I think one of the other instances that I've talked to about women who have faked orgasms, but in this case with a long-term partner, one woman actually told me, you know, I have an orgasm 95% of the time, but the other five, when it's not going to happen, it honestly has nothing to do with him. It's me. So I really just don't want him to feel bad, because it's not anything he's doing. And that was her instance, which is a totally different story, but also a very interesting other perspective. But also going off of that, like, why would he feel bad? You're a normal human who has all the right to not orgasm 100% of the time, and so does he. And since you are a normal human you will have orgasmless sex at some point in your life, and it might not be good, but it also still might be enjoyable. And if nothing else, hopefully it's a learning experience. Right, although to me, it still
1: goes down to the, it's female orgasm being a male achievement. And if if it it should, orgasms are great, but not all satisfying sex ends in orgasm. And if we can take this goal-oriented pressure off, then, you know, some days you do, some days you don't. That's true for men and women, and that's okay. And the interesting thing about sex and orgasm is the best sex is when the person involved is, both people involved get to the point where they're focused on themselves and fully immersed in their own pleasure. And, you know, if we can let go of this achievement-oriented goal that this is about, uh, you know, So as a side note, I gave a workshop once and a woman raised her hand and she said, well, this has all been very helpful, but now what do I do about the fact that I've been faking orgasm for 30 years?
0: Wow. That is such a difficult situation. Holy moly. What did you tell her? Yeah.
1: Um, I said, well, you know, you've got two choices. You can I mean, obviously, she didn't want to keep faking, so that wasn't on the table. You can go tell him you've been faking for 30 years, which is going to create a lot of problems. Or you can go home and you can say, you know, I went to this workshop where I learned all about the clitoris and about how it really enhances female orgasm and how vibrators work and I'm pretty interested in trying this because I love having sex with you, and I'd like to try new things. So, how about next time we have sex, we focus a lot more on my clitoris, or you know, I use a vibrator on myself during intercourse. Make it like this new discovery together, rather than oh, by the way, it hasn't been working for 30 years. So, I of course I don't know how that worked out for, her, but um, I hope it worked out well.
0: Right. And another thing I read in one of your articles is making a sexual debut and sort of the same thing was mentioned in my interview with Peggy Ornstein. She talked about a young girl that said that losing your virginity should actually be marked by having your first orgasm with another person. And especially by that kind of incredible definition, um, examining that woman's relationship is Kind of in- incredible to think about that thirty years into her relationship, by that definition, she's still a virgin,
1: exactly. Yes. And I love that because making losing virginity first, it's like this loss. So the right. more sex positive Why is term it is, win right. And the more sex positive term is making a sexual debut. But I think and Peggy Ornstein talked about this too, it's that doesn't take it far enough because it's still not inclusive of lesbian sex. And you're still defining sex by intercourse. So I think the much more inclusive definition is your first orgasm with another person.
0: So going back to your class, what are some of the more impactful things you've learned from the people that have gone through it? Some of the the takeaway points from over the years that you could share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I thank you for asking that because I mean, teaching that class is like so meaningful to me. And I learn as much from my students as they learn from me. And I think what I have, the two things I've learned the most, is, well, three, um, is just how this generation of college students that I'm teaching, I call them the most misinformed generation about sex ever. And they agree with me. And it's so sad to me because suddenly we have all this sexual information at our fingertips. So you'd think people would be more informed, but because there's so much false information and so little sex ed, there's so much misinformation people are carrying. Also so much shame, you know, from people's upbringing that they bring to sex. And that the other thing is I've just been so appalled by the stories I've heard about what people were taught in schools and in religious organizations about sex that we have only 23 states in the US require sex ed only 13 require them to be medically accurate so that means we can tell people lies in classes about sex you know peggy Orenstein calls it ideology over evidence and i've heard some horrible horrible things that people were taught in sex ed right here in the US. But the one that comes to mind the most is that a young woman told, this is in a classroom here in Florida, just a few years ago, that if she had intercourse before marriage, her vagina would mold to the shape of that person's penis and her future husband would never be satisfied. My students have taught me just how Bad our sex ed is and how the harm it's causing. It and that's why I go ahead.
0: Wow. And I think that even more terrifying than even being told that is the fact that the standard is so low and the culture we live in is so misinformed that anybody could possibly believe that. I mean, it's one thing to say that people say ridiculous things all the time and we know not to believe them. But the fact that anyone could take that almost comically disturbing lie, is even a remote resemblance of truth is scary. And it's just so backwards. It just reflects how pathetically broken the system itself is. Yeah. I mean, and other people, it is. And don't
1: forget, these are people in power. These are like grownups who are supposed to be the teachers teaching, you know? So, um, yeah, I could go on and on. But that's the thing that I've learned the most from my students and also just how resilient they are. Like when given good information, they can turn their sex lives around and they can, you know, I have so many people come to my class the first day of class. I'm like using words like penis, vagina, clitoris, intercourse, oral sex. And they're just like, ah. and then by the end of the class, you know, 12 weeks, 15 weeks later, they're like, Excuse me, Dr. Mins, I have a question about the clitoris, and they're just completely different. And it so it really gives me hope that information is power.
0: Yeah. So, how would we go about helping live that? Helping people who don't have access to your class actually live that information and that power?
1: I think you're doing that right with what you're doing. Um, I think, you know, reading things on the internet is hard to know what's, you know, real, what's not. But, you know, read good sources. Believe it or not, some magazines like Teen Vogue, they have very positive, accurate sex ed. You know, um, look at your sources. You know, if you have a question, look it up, not, you know, be careful of the sources you look it up on. get yourself a good textbook on sexuality. My favorite book for all things sexual is Paul Joannidis' Guide to Getting It On. It's like the sex bible. It has everything in it you'd ever want to know. Use that as a resource. And then there's more specific books for sexual problems like, you know, Becoming Clitorate for Learning About Female Orgasm or She Comes First, Ian Kerner's book for Uh, oral sex how-to manual for men. Um, So get good information. It is out there.
0: Amazing. And you know, you talk a lot about the orgasm gap, which I might have you summarize quickly for those not familiar. But to conclude, I'd love to just ask you how you think that this right to information and power could possibly apply to things outside of a sexual context. For example, how might the orgasm gap have something in common with the wage gap? Basically, in terms of how this concept of information is power lesson might transcend other walks of life as well.
1: What a great question. So to summarize, the orgasm gap is basically it's a phenomenon so far that we know when cisgender, which means you know, cisgender women and cisgender men have a sexual encounter again. So a person born with a vulva who identifies as a woman having sex with a person with a penis who was born as a male and identifies as a male because we don't have enough research to know how the gap applies to um, non-gender conforming folks. So basically what it is is when these two groups get it on the women are having substantially fewer orgasms than men, and that's true in all kinds of sex. So one study, my own, that's in my book, Becoming Clitorate, 55% of men versus 4% of women say they usually orgasm during first-time hookup sex. Now it gets smaller in friends with benefits, subsequent hookups, relationship sex, but it never closes altogether. And how is that related to other Inequities, other gender inequities, they are all related to the same root cause. And this is not to blame men at all. Hear me loud and clear. It's, I'm blaming culture. It's the cultural privileging of the male experience. So, you know, basically, why are women having fewer orgasms than men? Because we are prioritizing the act through which men come, not women come, intercourse. So it's all related to sort of a societal gender inequity that we can address and we can change.
0: Yeah. And going off of what you said about not blaming men, well, I don't want to use the word blame, but a woman could also be just as much at fault if she is saying, you know, I'm okay. I don't need that. I actually just enjoy the process. Because in a way, that is helping just as little as perhaps somebody who... Exactly. Yeah. And I emphasize
1: that I was, wasn't blaming men because when I talk about the cultural privileging of the male experience, I think men and women um, suffer when, you know, and there's a great quote that I absolutely love. And um, it was when talking about racial inequities in the healthcare system, there can be no quality without equality, and that applies to all realms, including the sexual.
0: Right. So I think we can say that it's just as much both women and men's roles to inform themselves to assume their own power to information, their own power to pleasure, and their own power to pleasuring their partner.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes, I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much. And to all our listeners, you can check out Lori's book, Becoming Literate. And Lori, we look forward to chatting more with you in the future. Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to the BBXX Podcast. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time.